0: If you're a guest with us, I do want to say welcome to you. My name is Joseph Siegel. I'm the lead pastor of Providence. We are glad that you've come to gather with us in this gathering of uh, our church. And if you uh, weren't here last week, we called time out from our exposition or our verse by verse study through the book of Luke. uh, And we're doing kind of a topical study, something that we don't do a whole lot um, through uh, just talking about the church. All right. What is the church? And and in particular, what we're seeking to ask is how should the church be structured? How is the church to be governed? Okay. and so in getting that started last week, we just talked about what is the church? And we talked about the fact that there are, you know, a ton of metaphors throughout Scripture that describe the church, that the church is a body and so it's made up of of many different members, eyes and ears and Uh, you know, uh, mouth and toes, head and shoulders. How's that go? Something like that. But there's all these different parts, many, many members. And so we talked about the church is a body. We talked about the church is a family. And that in, you know, in a a very real sense, we all have the last name, the same last name. It's the last name of Christian. And we live out that family name. This is our identity. This is who we are we are christians we all have that in common we all have the same last name we talked about the fact that the church is a family that the church the body is a family it's a flock it's the bride of christ all of these things that we you know use but above all the church is a people it's a people of god's own possession and so universally the church is made up of all people across all times and all geographic locations who are believers universally. And then locally, Okay, there's local representations of that local examples of that bigger reality. And so we, Providence Baptist Church, are a manifestation of the church. We are the church. And so we talked a little bit about that last week, local and universal. But again, fundamentally, what the church is, is it's a people. It's a people of God's own possession so that's what the church is and then that naturally leads to the question of well what does the church do and we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about that last week because we talk about it all the time it's on the wall outside of here what does the church do the church gathers the church grows the church serves the church goes that's what the church does Okay, we we gather for worship, like what we do right now. This is scripture, when you look at scripture, this is the most important moment of what the church does functionally every week. We gather together. This is the best representation of the corporate body when we're all together. So we gather for worship, and then we grow. We're to grow in knowledge, we're to grow in the word, we're to grow in understanding God's will. We're growing in our knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of. Of the calling with which he's called us, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians one nine and ten. This is what we do, and so we grow in Christ, and we do that in a large part in groups. We grow in groups, and so we gather, we grow, we serve. Okay, we serve one another, we serve the church, and then we serve those outside the church, the community. So we 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 gather for worship, we grow in groups, we serve the church and the community. And then we go to our neighbors and to the nations with the Gospel. We go across the street. We go across the world. This is what the church does. And so, we talked about what the church is, what the church does, and as we come to kind of you know roll into this idea of how is the church governed, our big overriding principle and answer to that question, how is the church governed, is that the church is to be elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally governed. We talked about that last week. You know, It's in your bulletin this week in your sermon guide. You'll hear that every single week. Elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally governed. Because when you, when you peel away all traditions and, and historical pragmatism that's brought us to some of the more common structures that we may know of today and you just go to the scriptures and you just look at the early church what what you're going to find is that is that a church is to be elder led and by elders we mean a plurality of pastors elders overseers bishops pick your word they're all synonyms they all refer to the same office okay a plurality of those some of whom are paid and vocational and some of whom are not okay a plurality multiple pastors elders in one church served by deacons And then governed or at least approved by the congregation. Elder led, deconserved, congregationally governed. And so, as we start parsing out that phrase over the next several weeks, we're going to begin by talking about that last little portion first. All right, the idea of congregationally governed. What does that mean? The idea of congregational governance. And just straight out of the gate to Uh, just, you know, let you know a couple of things. I'm going to be leaning a lot on, on the work of Jonathan Lehman in a book called Don't Fire Your Church Members. I put it in your resources. Really helpful in just kind of organizing my thoughts around a couple of things. Um, really helpful. I put it in your resources. I would encourage you to read that. If you don't have time to read all of that, do definitely pick up. We, we've got a, do we have it in here today? On the way out, there's a PDF. It's a bound little booklet that we printed out, a, a PDF, Um, by a pastor in D.C., Mark Dever, called A Display of God's Glory. And it's real short. Grab that on your way out. And this week, as it relates to congregationalism, if you'd read pages 31 through 43, I would appreciate that. If you would do that, you would be greatly helped if you would do that. So grab that on your way out. We have one for every family. Grab that and read through it. It'll be a big help to you uh, and a big help to us as a church. And so, biblical congregationalism, that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what I titled the message, biblical congregationalism. And by saying biblical congregationalism, that necessarily implies that there is an unbiblical congregationalism. And unfortunately, that's probably the one that, that most of us, whether you are a church member or not, are probably familiar. This is a stereotypical one. This is the one that's laughed at and kind of drags the name of Jesus through the mud, it's it's the one you know where where the is run like a committee of the whole, and so every single decision comes before the congregation, and people fight over we, whether we need to buy brooms or we need to buy mops. Then they have those sorts of conversations and fusses. It's the one where every business meeting turns into a beat-down session on the pastor. So you set up a mic out there in the front and everybody starts bringing their complaints. Why are there no flowers up there? Why? And I'm not talking about our church. We don't roll like that, but this is the stereotype that's out there for many churches. It's the one where when the business meeting is almost over and they go to any final business and just out of the blue, a guy stands up and says, I move you, sir, that the pastor be dismissed and relieved of his responsibilities. And I was talking with a guy this week who, who's seen that. He's seen that happen in a church that he was a part of. I've seen with my own eyes business meetings devolve to where people are calling one another to go outside and finish it. Let's go finish it outside. That's wickedness. That's unbiblical Congregationalism. I mean, just rule of thumb if it can wind up on the Jerry Springer show, that's unbiblical congregationalism. <laughs> and so that's one form of unbiblical congregationalism, and, and, and that one's very, you know, wicked and sinful, but there are other forms that aren't necessarily wicked, but they are just as unbiblical. Again, that idea of a committee as a whole, when so you, you don't let leaders lead. You don't find that on the pages of Scripture. Or the idea that congregationalism is democracy. is just a pure democracy. Biblical congregationalism is not a democracy. Now, you vote. There are certainly things that we vote and the majority prevails. Absolutely. Absolutely. But in, in, in democracy, citizens choose leaders that reflect their preferences and then they send them into office with a mandate to carry out those preferences. And if they don't carry out those preferences, then they vote them out of office. Any, me or any other pastor or elder, we, we don't sit and fulfill the mandates of the members. We fulfill the mandates of Scripture. That's what we're called to do. Not the will of the people, but the will of God. And so because churches rightly don't want to, uh, you know, wind up with some of these horror stories and these caricatures where the congregations just run rampant. And I'm not saying the elders can't run rampant either. That happens, too. And when that happens, they need to vote them out. But because people don't want to wind up in these situations with these just, you know, horror stories and these caricatures or or whatever of what's happening, oversimplifying a little bit, you wind up with kind of two camps. And I know I'm oversimplifying here, but it's to, to help make a point. You wind up with kind of these two camps where on the one hand, you have churches who have no congregational authority because they don't want to run rampant, no congregational authority, and everything is run by the elders, and then you have churches who have no elders authority, no pastoral authority and everything's run by the congregation. And what makes it hard to understand truly what congregationalism is when you look at the scriptures like because that's what you're, you you want to ask the right question. What does the Bible say? So even when you ask the right question and you look into the scriptures to see what the Bible says, what we find is, in a lot of ways, there appears to be two you know, streams of authority in the church. Because what you, you see multiple places where it seems as if the final authority rests in the congregation. And then you see several places where it seems that ultimate authority um, under Christ rests in the pastors or the elders. Now you got Hebrews thirteen seventeen: Obey and submit. To your leaders, for they keep watch over your souls. And so putting those two ideas together, you know, you got these two streams and this is going to be number one in your notes. I want you to write down putting all this together. What we find is that there are different kinds of authority in the church. There are different kinds of authority in the church. And so how do we reconcile these two things? What we don't do is pit them against each other and just drop the one that we you know, least like and just pick one. What's the congregation? So they do everything and the the pastor is really just a glorified Sunday school teacher that we happen to pay. No. And then on the other side, well, it's the elders, and so they do everything. No, God gave the church elders And He gave the church elders for a purpose. They are to lead the church. And insofar as they are leading biblically and properly, not necessarily the way preferentially everyone may want, but biblically and properly, then as a congregation we're called to follow the elders and the leaders, to submit and obey. But on the flip side, elders or pastors are not to say, well, God gave the church elders, so we will do everything. The congregation didn't really have anything to do. We'll handle it all. The truth of the matter, when you look at God's Word, as it relates to authority, He's given the church both elders and members. And the elders clearly have one kind of authority, and members clearly have one kind of authority. But Jesus has all authority. And so when you think of it in that sense where he is the chief shepherd, the idea of... No, 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 it's really a monarchy because he's in control. And then it's a mixed government underneath that. And he will hold elders and members responsible for their part, for what they are supposed to do. And so what is the part that the congregation plays? All right, What is the authority that they have? Rather than just give you a list, I thought we might try to apply it and make it personal. Like how it affects you and me. And so, four practicalities of congregational authority. Okay, Four practicalities of congregational authority. And the first one is this. You have an office in the church. You have an office in the church and that office is called church member. When you look at Scripture... You may have even heard people talk about when you, when you look at Scripture, there's, there's two biblical offices. There's the office of elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, choose your word, all synonyms, pastor, elder, and then there's the office of deacon. But in a lot of ways, functionally, functionally, there's a third office, and that is the office of church member. And it's, huge, it's a hugely important one. And so let me try to show you this from Matthew chapter 16. So on page five thirty three in uh, the Bibles that are around you if you don't have a Bible please grab that and open it up it's going to be helpful um, I, I'm really going to try to point out a few things um, in particular in, between Matthew 16 and 18 so please grab that open it up page five thirty three be ready to flip over to five thirty four if you don't own a Bible take that one home it's our gift to you I give you a second to get there because I, I want you to I really want you to be able to look at the Scriptures with me. We're going to be flipping back and forth between Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. We'll go to some other ones later on. Page 533, Matthew 16. John read it earlier, but we're going to do it again. Verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so notice verses 13 and 15 in particular. Right. In verse 13 and 15, Jesus seems to kind of be focused in on a what and a who. Like in verse 13, He's focused in on what is a right confession of me? What, who do people say that I am? He wants to know what, is a, you know what is a right confession. And then in verse 15, who knows this right confession? Okay. Who is the right confessor? Who is a true confessor? And so then Jesus looks at, at Peter and says, you got it right. True confession. And you are a true confessor. Blessed are you. And so Jesus, with all authority, has authority to declare the what, all right? What is a true confession, and the who? Who is a true confessor? And then, verse 19, it seems that Jesus now gives this authority at least to peter as a rep- at least to the apostles with peter as a representative that he at least is given that authority to declare the what and the who to the apostles say yes this is a right confession and yeah you are a right confessor now it's important to understand this is purely declarative this is not you can't the church can't make someone a believer this is just declaring yeah, that person's got the right... They understand the gospel. And insofar as we can understand and see a heart, because we're not God, we can't open up and look in and say, yep, there it is. We, we just looking on the outside, yeah, that, they appear to be a true, genuine believer. This is declarative. So it's kind of like my um, driver's license. It declares that I am a, you know, Tennessean. It didn't make me one. That happened when I moved here eight years ago. But it declares it. It 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 states it, and that's kind of weird. I was like, "Slapping my, I'm I'm referring to the wallet here." I caught myself. I was like, "Don't do that." (laughs) And so it's declarative, all right. Declaring the what—that's the gospel—and the who—and that person truly believes it. All right. Now look over at verse or chapter 18. Now, whip over one page. Chapter 18. All right. what's going on here is Jesus is talking uh, uh, about how we help brothers who are in a dispute, ultimately um, church discipline, the steps of church discipline. And so chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is a non-believer. He's no longer part of the church because he's acting unrepentantly, will not repent, so he's an unbeliever because he will not repent. And then verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven now notice this chapter 16 verse 19 look at it again chapter 16 verse 19 i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven and now chapter 18 verse 18 Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so what appears to be taking place here is that Jesus is clarifying that these keys of the kingdom and the ability to say the what and the who are not the apostles alone, but they actually belong to the church. Because in chapter 18... All he references here, like the final authority, verse 17, tell it to the church. So there's no mention of apostles here. There's no mention of, of elders here. There's no mention of any leaders here. And so the final court of appeal here and the, the ability to declare the what and the who appears to belong to the church. And again, I want to stress this, this is only declarative. Can't make you a believer. Christ makes you a believer. Okay through faith in what He's done. He, he lived the life that you haven't lived, a life without sin. He died the death that you've been condemned to die, death for sin, and He rose to give you a gift. You can never um, earn yourself forgiveness of sin. And He offers this to all who will repent and believe the Gospel and receive this good news and receive this gift of salvation. And He will give you forgiveness of your sin. He'll give you eternal life. Make you a fit, member of His family. Adopt you. And you become a child of our Heavenly Father. And so by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we've been given salvation, but the church has the authority to declare, yep, that looks like a real confession of the Gospel, and that looks like someone who really believes it. That's what we do when we receive members. Even right now, we do a pastoral interview. All right, tell me about, you know, Tell me about your your spiritual background. And sometimes we have the opportunity to to share Christ. We see this person does not know the Lord Jesus. They have not trusted. And we have a chance to share the gospel with them. And we've seen people come to Christ uh, through those conversations. But in other places, you know, they they tell us about this. And all right, we got it. Yep, that's a true confession of the gospel. You get it. And not only do you confess it rightly, not not only can you regurgitate it, insofar as we can see, you actually believe it. And so then we come and we present them to you guys. Hey, we think these people are genuine believers. Do you want to receive them into the fellowship of the church? But that's y'all's responsibility. Like I can lead, and I should as an elder, but that is ultimately your responsibility to declare the what and the who of the gospel. It's not the job, and when I say it's y'all's, I don't mean any one member. It's not Andy's responsibility. And so Andy can go around seeking to understand, do you know the gospel? Do you, you know, it, not that he shouldn't, but it's, this is the job of the congregation. This is a corporate idea here. This what and who. So like in the church that I grew up in, I grew up in a Cumberland Presbyterian church uh, in northwest Georgia. And when someone you know came to Christ or came and, and wanted to join the church, uh the pastor would you know uh call the the session and that's what they call the elders call the session and they'd all stand up my dad was one and and, and so uh, people would be like you know um, uh, i i moved to to receive this person into the full fellowship of the church second you know all in favor say amen amen all opposed no right but that was the elders doing that that was the session doing that they were the ones de- declaring Yeah, this person seems to be a true confessor with a true confession. But it looks like that should be the church who does that. It should be the people in this, not just the elders. It should be y'all do it, all of us, me included, because I'm a member, all of us doing this together. And the elders should lead in that, absolutely. It's what we do, it's what elders do. But the authority of the what and the who in declaring that rests in the congregation. And so that's what congregationalism is kind of about in a big picture. It's about taking responsibility for the family name, the authority to declare the what and the who of the gospel. And so you've got an office in the church. That's letter A. Letter B, if you've got an office in the church, that means you have a job. You have a job in the church. And your job is to guard Christ's gospel and Christ's church. I mean, this is kind of reflecting on that what and the who. You're, you're guarding those things. And we guard it doctrinally. And we guard it personally through discipling, through admonishing, through encouraging, and even through disciplining those who confess to know Christ. And again, elders lead in that, but the authority rests in the congregation. Because when you look at 1 Corinthians 5, for example, when you look at 1 Corinthians 5, what you've got here is a horrible story of blatant sexual immorality. A guy's sleeping with his stepmom. And the church is kind of applauding this, it seems. And, and Paul writes to them, and, and, and in writing to them, he doesn't rebuke the pastors and the elders for what's going on. He rebukes the church as a whole. Because the church is to guard the gospel. They are to guard the church and one of the ways that you guard it is through accepting members and through dismissing members and here he's saying you should have dismissed this guy if he doesn't repent if he will not repent and if he just happily goes on doing what he's doing that means he at least does not seem to be a believer and you need to dismiss him because you have to be a believer i said member you have to be a believer to be a part to be a member of the church And so that's why Paul says in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. He gets even more pointed in verse 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. And so guarding the gospel and guarding the church means that sometimes excommunication is necessary. Kicking someone out of the church. Declaring, you've got the right gospel confession, but you don't seem to be a true confessor. You're not not living it. There's no fruit. You're not not living that out. Your actions contradict the confession you make. And this idea, this is to be entered into slowly, giving ample time for the church to admonish and call the person to repentance. But ultimately, if there is no repentance, you remove him. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks when we talk about membership and church discipline in particular. And so we guard the gospel when we, even through tears, have to purge someone out of the church. But we also guard the gospel on the front end and how we receive members into the church. And so like this morning, we talked about it just a minute ago a little bit, but if someone comes, and I hope they do, and comes and wants to join the church this morning, and they've met all the prerequisites that, that we have here. You know, I'm, I'm going to present them to you and I'm going to talk about how I or someone else uh, connected to, you know, leadership have talked with them and have heard their testimony and understand that, yep, they understand the gospel. They get what the gospel is and they seem to genuinely believe it, and so we're presenting them to you, vouching on their behalf that they have a true confession and that they are a true confessor, and then you'll vote to receive them. And we do that, and that's good, and that's right, and that's proper. Those those are some good steps. But how much better would it be if we took the time, and we couldn't do this on a Sunday morning, maybe Sunday night or something something else, but if we took the time to be able to tell you like a quick summary of their testimony. And not laying out their entire life story, but but letting you know who they are, see a picture of them, tell you where they moved from and, and kind of, you know, wh- what area they live in so we can help them get connected to the church and, and 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 where they work so that maybe, you know, men or or if it's a woman can women can gather around and they can, you know, talk at lunch and they can push one and they can we can develop these discipleship Just where it's happening in the church, it's just oh, I work near them, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna grab them. We're gonna grab lunch and we're gonna walk. We're gonna read the book of Mark together. How much better would that be if we could do it like that? Just help get connected. That's that's the body loving the body a whole lot better in accepting members. And then once they are members, if one part suffers, we all suffer. If one part celebrates, we all celebrate. Because we're a body. We're members of one another. And we guard one another. We guard each other's confessions. We speak into one another's lives. We push one another on to holiness, to fruit in keeping with repentance. And so, congregationalism, I don't want you to misunderstand, it doesn't just happen on Sunday. like That's where it's best reflected, but it's got a Monday through Saturday application as we are loving one another, walking with one another, admonishing one another, praying for one another, All week long. This is how we guard the gospel. This is how we guard the church. Receiving and dismissing members. Understanding the what and the who. And so church member, you have an office. Church member, you have a job. All right. And church member, you have a responsibility for the church as well. You have a responsibility for the church as well. Flip over to Galatians 1. We just saw in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is holding the church accountable there. He doesn't call out the elders. He calls out the church as a whole. And He does the same thing in Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, he basically says, Hello, my name's Paul. You guys are all a bunch of idiots. Galatians chapter 1, this is on page 631. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. Like If you didn't get it the first time, let me say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so verse 6 again. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Why is Paul astonished at that? Paul is astonished because he expects that every single person sitting in the pews of First Baptist Galatia would so understand the gospel that when something different is being preached, they could say, that's not right. That's not the gospel. You're preaching a gospel of politics. You're preaching a gospel of prosperity. You're preaching some sort of liberation theology. That's not the gospel. That they would stand up and say, wrong, done, get out. And so Paul's astonished and Paul's calling them out because they're not doing their job. They're not guarding the gospel. And they have a responsibility to do this. And he's calling them out for it. That's their job. And so if if i maybe i mean if if i'm ever up here and i'm preaching not the true gospel i'm not faithfully preaching scripture not just necessarily something you isn't in your bag or i'm stepping on your toes or anything like that i'm not trying to get fired today but if i am preaching a false gospel i am not being faithful to scripture then you do need to fire me. Quickly. That's your responsibility. Guard the gospel. Guard the church. And so as members, you have an office, you have a job, you have a responsibility. And then D, letter D, you have elders to teach, equip, and lead you in how to do those things. You have elders to teach, equip, and lead you in doing those things. I mean, just think about it. A congregation can't judge the what and the who of the gospel unless the elders have taught them what the what and the who looks like. And so if it's your responsibility to guard the gospel and guard the church, then the elders have a responsibility to make sure you understand the gospel more and more, deeper and deeper. Okay, so you've got, again, these two streams of authority congregation has the authority to declare the what and the who. The elders have the authority of teaching and leading and equipping you to do that job. Acts 20 talks about the fact that it's the Holy Spirit who's made them overseers. Titus 1, their elders or pastors are to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Hebrews 13, you have that command again to, to, to submit and obey your leaders, for they give you know uh, an account for your soul. They, they keep watch over your soul. And so what this means is in the vast majority of situations, and insofar as the elders and pastors are doing their job biblically and, and, and properly, in the vast majority of situations, the congregation is to follow the leadership of the pastors or the elders. I mean, even our current uh, membership covenant says this. I will follow the pastors, plus elders insofar as they follow Christ. Meaning, if we're following Christ, you follow. Even if it's not maybe your preference, you, we're not, you, you follow. But if we derail, you fire us. Mark Devers said this once. He said the basic attitude towards elders and pastors should be either trust them or replace them. Trust them or get rid of them. And so in a lot of ways, the congregation is sort of an emergency break that can be pulled when elders go rogue. Not not when they do something that you don't necessarily prefer, but if they drift from the gospel, Galatians 1, are preaching a different gospel than the one that is proclaimed in Scripture. Pull the emergency brake, fire them, and get some biblical, gospel-centered pastors, elders in their place. And so as a member, you have an office in the church. You have a job in the church. You have a responsibility for the church. And you have elders to teach, equip, and lead you in doing these things well. And so when we talk about biblical congregationalism and trying to strengthen that in our church, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about voting on brooms versus mops. We're not talking about what color to paint the walls. We're talking about something far more amazing and wonderful that, that Jesus has entrusted His people, the church, okay? Every um, local congregation that through baptism and the Lord's Supper and membership, we declare, not make, but we declare who belongs to Christ and His church. This is your job. This is our job. This is our responsibility corporately. And so, in a lot of ways, biblical congregationalism means that it's not only I who have gone into ministry. It's every single one of us. We have a responsibility. We have a job. Corporately. That's biblical congregationalism. Let's pray. Father, I pray that even as we talk about some of these you know, things maybe we haven't talked about too much in, in the church and practical, you know, kind of structural things Lord, that we would not push that to the side and just kind of be like, oh, this isn't really for me. This is, you know, Lord, this has everything to do with this because the church, this is the church is the greatest manifestation of your presence with us. The church loves, the church cares, the church is the hands and the feet, the, the church is. The visible, I get that, the visible manifestation. And so, Father, help us to live that out. Help us to care for one another. All week long. Sending texts and emails and phone calls and hey, I'm praying for you and, and gathering, just not, you know, programmatically from the church driven up, but just is just organically happening and discipleship is just how we live and praying for one another and encouraging one another. Help us to take our responsibility towards one another seriously. and Mourn with those who are mourning and celebrate with those who are celebrating. And be hospitable and generous and gracious. Slow to anger and quick to reconciliation. Rallied around one foundation. And help us to repent if we've ever rallied around a different foundation. Help us to not depart from the gospel. And help us to walk with one another and push one another on. And help us as ambassadors, like live truly as ambassadors for the gospel and for your church. We are your ambassadors. You have made us that. You have declared us that. Help us to live that. And Father, may we truly, for those in this room who who are facing difficulty, heartbreak, and pain, and may we truly minister one to another. This is what the church does. This is how you work in our, this is one of the ways you work in our lives. Help us to be faithful to it. It's in Christ's name. Amen.